course, is in Pentecost, a four-letter word, and most people will not want to hear too much about it, uh, certainly won't want to engage too much in it, and I get it, I understand. Fasting is not comfortable, fasting is, is hard sometimes, uh, it's, it's a sacrifice. But it's absolutely necessary if we are to accomplish His will. We cannot be people of God, we cannot be the people that God wants us to be, without fasting. We just can't. It's not going to happen. Uh, we can pray, and certainly prayer is effective. It's absolutely effective. But if we couple it with fasting, it will nitrocharge your prayers. It really will. If you're desiring to be more spiritual or closer to God, right. if you begin to pray and fast, yes. you will draw closer to God faster yes, than you can imagine. Amen. Faster, faster. It really is. It really is a miraculous tool that He's given us. Yes. Now, fasting, of course, is uh, mostly abstaining from food, and so. Uh, certainly in the United States, and certainly in Pentecost at large, we do like to eat. And so, that's kind of a, that's kind of a running joke in Pentecost. But I'm not sure that that's something that we really ought to be known for. Right. I don't think that's, I don't think that's what God would want attached to his church. That kind of a reputation. That our God is our belly. Uh, but that's a topic for another time. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31 says this. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Now, I alluded to an article that I found a while ago. Uh, I couldn't find it at the time. I mentioned it about the eagles scraping their beaks and stuff like that. Uh, I did find the reference, and so I'm going to quote it uh, directly here uh, by way of review. An old eagle's feathers in the latter years of his life grow old and mottled and eventually begin to fall out. His beak grows dull and his talons blunt. He cannot fly as high as he used to. Nor can he tear the, the prey with his beak or grip the prey with his talons as before. Instinct within an eagle tells him to fly high into the mountains and to find a cave where he can be all alone. There in that cave he will begin scraping his feathers, beak, and talons on a rock until he completely scrapes them away. He also does not eat or drink water, but rather fasts. It is a very painful and homely experience. The eagle simply waits, for he knows through instinct that his feathers, beaks, and talons will eventually grow back to normality. When the eagle emerges from his time of waiting and stretches his wings for all the world to see, he looks like a brand new young eagle. He then mounts up on wings and flies again to the heights he once knew. That is a quote from a book called The Way of the Eagle by John Arcobio. Fasting, according to Dictionary.com, is to abstain from food, to eat very little, or abstain from certain foods, especially as a religious discipline. We understand through Scripture and uh, the references we find contained in the Bible that fasting really is dying. Fasting is dying. It's crucifying our flesh. It's dying to our old nature, our old uh, ideas, our old... Uh, habits are old ways of doing things. Yes. It's dying to those things and becoming alive again unto the ways of God. Mm -hmm. We need to crucify our flesh. Paul said he does this daily. Well, not anymore. He did. Now I suppose it's crucified once and for all, huh? Mm -hmm. <coughs> that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> but we who are still alive and remain, uh, we can fast and crucify our flesh daily. Amen. The scripture that we just read indicates that 
do this, when we wait upon the Lord in a time of fasting, when we're, when we're engaged in a period, of it, as we go forward uh, into this, this uh, new era, whatever you want to call it, uh, really old, but anyway, uh, as we move forward in the plan of God, we are going to begin fasting regularly. I'm going to be encouraging all of us to start fasting regularly and to push ourselves to fast a little bit more than perhaps we might be comfortable with. And uh, that's going to lead eventually to an extended fast. You know, as we start out, maybe we'll start off with one meal, this one meal, then we'll go to two, then we'll try a full day, a full 24-hour period. And you can do that from sunup to sundown, or you can do a Jewish fast, which is, I guess, basically sunup to sunup, sundown to sundown. Uh, however you want to do it. Or you can even go crazy and go two, three, seven, 14 days, 21 days, 40 days. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that is very doable. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and do a 40-day fast if you've never fasted before. That is crazy. And that's probably harmful. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to, to start working up to these things. Uh, the longer we can fast, there are, and if we have time, we'll go through detailed physiological benefits of extended fasts. But... The spiritual aspect is what we're trying to focus on. The spiritual aspect of fasting is spiritual results, becoming more spiritual. Now we understand through fasting, uh, <laughs> some of you probably know, have known people that have said things like, "I'm just, I'm just going to stop eating until Jesus answers my prayer. I'm just, I'm just going to fast until Jesus does this thing for me." And that's not a good place to be. Uh, you might get real hungry uh, and not see the results you're looking for. Fasting is not holding God's feet to the fire. Fasting is not going on a hunger fast, a hunger strike, until God does what we're, we're desiring Him to do. That's not fasting. Fasting is pre primarily to change me, to bring me in line with God's will. To help me to discern what that will is. And then give me the strength to accomplish it. That's what fasting does for us. It draws us closer to Him. It causes us to become more like Him. That's one of the things we're praying about here as a church. These, these things that need to happen in our lives. We need to become Christ-like. When someone speaks to us, when someone sees us on the street, interacts with us, they need to be experiencing Jesus Christ. They need to hear His words. They need to feel His presence. This world needs Jesus. And they, they're going to see Jesus in us. Fasting is one discipline that separates the spiritual children from the adults. I don't know how you want to take that, but it's true. Spiritual children are not going to be fasting. And we've talked at length about new converts and, and how new converts are. And that's, that's how new converts are. But as we mature into spiritual adults, we need to start giving as well as getting. And one of the ways we give is through fasting. We give ourselves to Jesus Christ through fasting. We, supplic we, we supplicate ourselves before Him. We are submitting ourselves not our will be done, but His will be done. Yes. Fasting, the results of fasting will always be spiritual in nature. Now there are physical benefits that we receive, certainly, uh, especially in our bodies. But, the results of fasting that we are seeking are spiritual in nature. We are seeking a spiritual nature to be born within us. We are seeking the burden of God to be to be born in our hearts for this city, this county, those people that He's placed in our path. Uh, we're desiring to become like Him, to have His thoughts, to speak His words, to see as He sees. That's the desire that we have in our hearts, and fasting will get us there. 
Fasting and prayer will get us there. When we start speaking about fasting, we start talking about implementing fasting, it's going to turn off and bore those who not, are not spiritually minded. Now, I say that to say this. If there are uh, people within the sound of my voice who are not spiritually minded, you're kind of tuning out a little bit right now. Fasting and prayer will get you spiritually minded. If you have a desire to be spiritually minded, yes. Come on, preach fasting and prayer will get you there. I can promise you the results. I can promise you that the results will come. If your desire is to be spiritual, if your desire is to be Christ-like, and you know you're not, start fasting and praying. You will become spiritual. Yes. Luke 9, 23 and 24 says, And he said to them all, this is Jesus speaking, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Again, we're talking about death. The flesh is in charge. It's been in charge since the fall, and it wants to stay in charge. It does not want to go hungry. It does not want to suffer discomfort. It wants to, it, it wants to experience pleasure and comfort and happiness. That's what the flesh wants. And in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with experiencing pleasure or being happy or anything like that. But when we seek that to the extent of everything else, that's when it becomes a problem. Fasting breaks the power of your flesh and gives strength and power to your spirit. Again, the thing that you feed is the thing that will be victorious. Come on, preach it. If you feed your spirit and starve your flesh, you will become more spiritual by default. If you feed your flesh and starve your spirit, you will become more carnal by default. And all the words in the world won't change either one. All the desire and hope and, and, and wishing in the world will not change either one. If it is your desire to be spiritual, then there are things that we just have to accomplish. We must purpose in our heart to do these things. They won't come by default. They won't come just down the pike. Our lottery ticket gets drawn and now we're spiritual. That's not how this works. Fasting will produce in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Both in the world and in our own lives. It is so necessary for us as the people of God. It is so necessary for us as the church of the living God to be a holy and a righteous people. I'm not saying we're holier than thou. I'm saying we are an accurate reflection of our God. Be ye holy as I am holy. Right. That's a commandment from God. Yes, he expects us to be holy like He is holy. Jesus. And we can be holy like He is holy. Not of ourselves, but through the finished work of Calvary. Through fasting and prayer, we can draw close to God. We can hear His voice more clearly. When we open His Word, we can understand what it's saying. Where before it was confusing and a jumbled mess of archaic King James words. When you begin to enter into a season of prayer and fasting, all of a sudden it makes sense. The understanding just jumps out at you. What an awesome thing that is. Through a period of prayer and fasting, we become humble before God. And to the secular person, that sounds like a bad thing. But to the spiritual person, that's the best thing in the world. When we humble ourselves before God, he will exalt us in due season. But if we exalt ourselves, He will humble us. I decided a very long time ago, after a couple incidences, that I was going to start humbling myself. Because I didn't want God to do it anymore. He's really good at it. 
Maybe too good at it. I wanted to start humbling myself. No, thank you. We need to humble ourselves in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our actions. We need to remain humble before God. We need to remain humble before the people of God. Submitting ourselves one to another. Yes. Esteeming others better than ourselves. That's okay. That's a good thing when we esteem others better than ourselves. Yes. And before God, we've got to walk softly and humbly. He is the Lord of glory. And he is deserving of our utmost and complete respect and reverence and awe and fear. I know he's our Heavenly Father. I know he's our Abba Father. And I'm thankful for that. And <laughs> you know, that brings up another thing, which is completely free tonight. I like preaching sermons that are nice, that are uplifting and edifying. I like preaching sermons that will, will strengthen and, and encourage. I don't feel like I've had a lot of those since I've been here. And I've actually asked God about that. Because at the risk of sounding sacrilegious or at the risk of sounding like I don't think God knows what he's doing. I know he knows what he's doing. And I know everything to the best of my ability is meant from God and, and that's what's best for us. I don't always like giving those kinds of messages though. And so anyway, I say that to say this. The messages that we receive, the messages God gives us to receive, are always for our best. And if we will do them, if we will focus on them and accomplish them in our lives, they will strengthen us. They will edify us. They will encourage us. Good preaching. Come on. If you are, if you are suffering from uh, depression or loneliness or, or uh, you have a need tonight, I promise you, if you start focusing on somebody else's need, if you start praying for somebody else who has a need, if you start ministering to somebody else in their time of need, God is going to move in with a whirlwind and take care of your need. He is going to strengthen you in your time of need. He's going to take care of you personally. You won't need to, to ask somebody else. You won't need to... to, to Wait for a feel-good message. Uh, God will minister to you directly yeah. in your time of need. As we begin to fast and pray, as we draw closer to God and as we become more like Him, those things kind of fall away anyway the need to, to be ministered to. And more and more we start feeling a need to minister. Jesus himself, of course, came not to minister, or to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Come on. If we are to be Christ-like, if we are to reflect him to this world, we must have the same attitude. Yes. That we are not here to be ministered to, but to minister, and if necessary, to give our lives a ransom for many. Certainly, we will give our lives in prayer and fasting, in service, in supplication to our King. Through a period of fasting and prayer, we will find that people who are bound will be delivered. That can be yourself, that can be someone else. Freedom comes to those who are bound through prayer and fasting. Through prayer and fasting, we see bodies healed. We see minds and spirits healed. Emotions healed. 
More and more I'm drawn to emotional healing. The things that people have suffered, the, people that, the, the things that people are enduring day to day, that they don't want to tell anyone for fear of embarrassment or judgment. Things that they've suffered at the hands of others. Stupid mistakes they've made in the past. These emotion, this emotional baggage <clears throat> can seem impossible to shake ourselves free from. But God can deliver. God can heal. It's His perfect will to do exactly that. Amen. Through prayer and fasting, we can heal our land. Through prayer and fasting, God will send revival. Through prayer and fasting, He will enable His church to fulfill the Great Commission. And so much more. So much more. In the Old Testament, there was only one required fast in the Mosaic Law, and that was on the tenth day of the seventh month, the great day of atonement. We find that in Leviticus 23, verse 26 through 32. During the Jewish captivity, the Jews instituted four annual fasts. The fast of the fourth month, kept on the seventeenth day of Tammuz, pronouncing that right, which was the anniversary of the capture of Jerusalem by the Chaldeans. It also was to commemorate the incident recorded in Exodus 32:19, which states that it came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and broke them beneath the mount. There was a fast of the fifth month kept on the ninth of Ab, Abib, to commemorate the burning of the city and temple. The incident recorded in Jeremiah chapter 52. The fast of the seventh month kept on the third of Tishri, which was the anniversary of the murder of Gedaliah, found in Jeremiah 41. And the fast of the tenth month to commemorate the beginning of the siege of the holy city by Nebuchadnezzar. We find later on that Queen Esther appointed a fast in Esther chapter 4. And in addition to these, there were uh, several public national fasts which were sometimes appointed for a time of spiritual uh, mourning to uh, repent of sin or to uh, enact divine favor. There were some notable fasts in the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, eating no food and drinking no water. Now we can't fast 40 days without food, but it will take a miracle to go 40 days without water. We find Elijah fasted 40 days in 1 Kings 19. Daniel fasted 21 days in Daniel chapter 10. Jesus fasted 40 days. These notable fasts were notable uh, not just for their length, their duration, but what came of them? Right. It's interesting that Jesus, although he fasted, did not really set days or times of fasting for the church. He only instituted that we should. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 15, he says, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Yeah. And in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus says, Moreover, when ye fast, not if, but when, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, not if, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, 
but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Amen. So, although God does not give a set date, time, calendar, uh, period of the month that Christians ought to fast, he is stating very explicitly that we do indeed need to fast. In John 16, verses, verse 21, we find this. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish. For joy that a man is born into the world. I would like a revival to this. I would like in fasting, the fasting that comes before, to this. When the church is in travail, it's exactly that. It's painful. It's a sacrifice. It's uncomfortable. When the church is in travail, it prays and it fasts. But when the child is delivered, none of that is remembered. None of the long hours of prayer, none of the days of fasting, none of the sacrifice, none of the pain, none of the none of the uh, the discipline, the spiritual discipline that was necessary. None of that is remembered anymore. All we see, all we experience, is the joy that babies are being born into the church. That's all we remember. That's all we know at that point. It's the rejoicing, the celebration, after the fact. When Jesus faced the cross, he faced it with joy. Not because he wanted to hang on a cross, but what laid after the cross. What was behind the cross. Your salvation and mine. So he went willingly. He went gladly. So that we could be saved. So that we could enter into a relationship with Him. We, the local church, become the mother. Intercessory prayer and fastings are the pains of labor, the travailing, the torment. And it will be exactly that. Those of you mothers that have given birth, you know exactly what this is. When someone says labor, you don't have you have a little bit more than a textbook definition. You understand exactly, experientially, what that means. We are entering into a period of labor, of travailing, of prayer and fasting. But when the church gives birth, there will most certainly be rejoicing. But that won't come just willy-nilly. That won't come because we want it to. It won't come because we hope it will. It won't come even because it's the will of God. It is the will of God. But it's His will to move through us to accomplish it. Right. There is no one else in this city. There's no one else for God to turn to but us. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 17 and 18, we get this account. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. I'm going to read a proclamation, a presidential proclamation. It starts like this. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. That's where I got that. 
Whereas, the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God, in all the affairs of men and of nations, has, by a resolution, requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by His divine law, nations, like individuals, are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this, by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties prosper to that solemn occasion, proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings, no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. President Abraham Lincoln, March 30th, 1863. As I read through this, I couldn't help but think how perfectly this describes today. <clears throat> how absolutely spot on President Lincoln is describing our day and age. In our pride and in our arrogance, lifting ourselves up by our own bootstraps, self-made. We have forgotten the God that made us, that protected us, that provided for us, that blessed us. And as we have systematically dismantled the institutions that once made us a nation, God has systematically dismantled his protections, his blessings, and his hand upon us for good. We see weather that we've never seen before. And in such regularity as we have never seen before. We see riots in the streets. Even ten years ago, we'd have never thought that even possible. <clears throat> a government, a White House, that actively seeks to dismantle the Constitution of the United States and institute new forms of government 
that are not only contrary to the laws of God, but in direct opposition to the laws of God. How can God do anything else? What choice have we given Him? We wonder and we we stare in amazement at the news and, and we cry out, incredulous, what in the world is going on? But what are we expecting? What can we expect to happen? Every time this has happened in history, every time a nation has left off from serving God, this is what happens. This is exactly what happens. This is exactly what we should be expecting to happen. As God removes Himself, as we remove God from every aspect of our lives, God removes Himself. He removes His hand of blessing. He removes His divine providence. What else can He do? As a nation, the blessings and the curses are in front of us. It is still God's desire for us to choose life. At the end of Exodus 24, Moses went up into Mount Sinai and stayed there for 40 days and for 40 nights, eating no food, drinking no water. He stood there in the presence of God. I look forward to speaking with him as to what he experienced during those 40 days. At the end of it, God wrote on two tables of stone, gave to Moses the terms of his new covenant, Mosaic Law. In Exodus 32, we read a horrific account. In the space of only 40 days, God's people broke the commitment they made to keep what God had already commanded. In Exodus 20, they agreed, whatever you say, that's what we're going to do. God was so angry at the, at the sin of the people that he was ready to wipe them out to a man Amen. and create from Moses a mightier nation. God was ready to judge, to wipe the slate clean, except for Moses. Moses stood in the way of that judgment. He got in the direct line of fire. He stood between the judgment of God and the people of Israel and made intercession. And God pardoned them. But Moses goes down and he confronts Israel. Moses became very angry at the sin of the people. And he smashed the tables of law. It symbolized something. It was a demonstration of the people of Israel breaking covenant with their God. Amen. He burned the idol, ground it to powder, spread it on the water, and made the people drink it. It symbolized a few things. The powerlessness of the idol... The wrath of God against sin. And as they drunk it, as they took it into their bodies, it symbolized that they had to bear the consequences of their sin. God forgave them. God's justice and his punishment was pushed aside. But there were still consequences to their sin. Moses summoned Aaron to give an account. Those that would not repent 
Those that wish to continue in this, Moses judged. He rallied all those who were, were repentant, who were not involved in worshiping the camp, the Levites, who responded as a group, and ordered them to take up their sword and kill all of them that were not repentant, who persisted in this idolatry. Moses intercedes again in behalf of Israel. Moses is desperate for God to forgive Israel. If you won't forgive, then blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Moses had such a burden. Moses had such a love that he was willing to put his own salvation on the line. I think personally, I don't think Moses was putting anything on the line. And I think he knew it. I think he knew it was God's desire to have mercy. He just needed a reason. The participants in this were first Moses. Moses was concluding a 40-day fast. He was close to God, intimate. As close as anybody could get at that time period. Moses listened for and he heard God's voice. He had received the revelation of God's law. After 40 days and nights of prayer and fasting, he received a revelation from God, the new covenant at that time, that God was going to institute with his people. Moses was steeped in his presence. Joshua, was waiting on the man of God. He stayed as close to God as he was able to. <laughs> he was as close to God as he could get. He heard Israel make sounds as if they were at war. And of course God, who received Moses up into the mount, who gave to Moses the revelation of his word and of his character, reflected in the law. He revealed to Moses what was going on in the camp. What was going on in the camp? The noise of war. But it wasn't the noise of war, it was worship. The people of Israel were worshiping. Now we find many times in the Old Testament that worship was integral. Integral. Integral? Integral. <laughs> Integral. I should say it that way. Integral. Ah, that's better. To conduct in war. Sometimes we even see that the kings of Israel would put worshippers out in the front lines. Yes. Yes. It was a necessary part of their battle plans. Worship of God. In the Old Testament, that was necessary. In the New Testament, worship is the noise of war. When we worship God, that is the sound of war. But be very careful who you worship. Our worship is reserved for Jesus Christ. We all understand that. Not just because we say that we worship Jesus Christ but that we do worship Jesus Christ. We worship Him with where we spend our time. We worship Him with where we put our finances, with where we use our gifts and talents. That's how we worship Jesus Christ, just as much as lifting our hands and shouting and praising God. There was an enemy in the camp. There was an idol present in the center of the camp of Israel. There should have been the shout of war going on, but instead they were worshipping. This enemy in the camp was invited into their camp. It didn't, it didn't come through an act of war. 
It was invited in. Right? Within 40 days they forsook Moses, they forsook their God, and gave themselves over to idolatry. Why? They had no relationship with God. They had none. Their relationship with God was, go to Him when I have a complaint. And He takes care of it. That was their entire relationship. From the time they left Egypt until this present moment. That's all they ever did with God, was complain, murmur, moan, and whine. They had a relationship with Moses, but he was gone. We don't know what happened to Moses. For all we know, he's dead. So now Aaron, you lead us. Probably everyone here have known someone who have followed a great man of God to their destruction. Our relationship... I want to have a relationship with all of you. But your relationship with Jesus Christ, is that takes precedence. Yes, sir. And you follow me only as I follow Christ. Come on, preach it. As soon as that ceases to be, then I'm out. I'm out of the picture. You continue to follow Jesus Christ. Come on. I have known too many people who have followed who used to be great men of God. But they were so enraptured by that man. They can do no wrong. Whatever they preach is truth. They never check it out. They were never taught to check it out. We've got to check it out. We've got to, we've got to know that it comes from the book. It's got to come from Scripture. And if it's not, you don't follow after it. We follow after Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our God. Yes. From time to time, we need someone to talk to Absolutely. It's nice to sit down with flesh and blood and to be understood and to be heard. And it is my pleasure and it's my blessing. It's my honor to be able to do that to whosoever will. But I'll tell you what, 99 times out of 100, all I'm going to do is encourage you to take it to Jesus. I'll listen. Absolutely. I'll offer any advice I can. But generally it's going to be, let's pray. Let's pray about that. Let's see what God will do in the midst of this. Amen. He's the answer. He's the one that has the answer. Yes, He is. They ought not have followed Moses. They should have followed God. God's never gone. So Moses came back. (laughs) Surprise. He's not dead. Yeah, whoopsies. He's still here. And now he's mad. Moses was angry because Israel had forsaken their God. Right. That's why he was angry. He wasn't angry because they forsook him. He wasn't angry because they stopped doing what he said. I can imagine he may have been a little frustrated from time to time. But that's not why he was so angry at this present moment. Moses preached holiness and righteousness to them. He loved Israel enough to intercede for them, and he loved Israel enough to preach righteousness to them. To tell them that they were wrong. He loved God enough to get angry at sin. And he loved God enough to intercede for the people that God loved. And this is really what this is all about. Love. Yes. For God so loved the world that He gave. If God loves them that much, then we need to stand in the gap. Our society has absolutely forsaken God. Our society is running as fast away from God as they possibly can. Our country has forsaken God. There's, there's no pretense anymore. It's, it's explicit. It's in your face. It's complete. They have left off every vestige of, of 
Christianity of, of holiness and righteousness. And they have followed after something else. But God loves them. He died for them. We need to love them as well. We'll hate the sin. God hates the sin. He hates it. He hates it all the day long. But He loves them. So do we. Jeremiah 1 verses 9 through 10 says this. I'll close with this. And the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have set this, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And so God is saying to his church today, we have been given the same power, the same authority to tear down and to destroy the works of the enemy, the strongholds in this county, and to build up, to plant the seed of the word of God, to build up this church and his kingdom. And it will be done through first prayer and fasting. Come on, prayer and fasting. It won't be done through a better program. It won't be done because we have all kinds of money to throw at it. It will be done because God will work through us. He will confirm his word with signs following. He will take the veil off of their hearts and off of their minds. He will cause them to see truth. He will lead them to a place of repentance unto salvation. He will save them. He will deliver them. And he will perfect them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Prayer and fast.